Hello, welcome to more of the Richard Herring podcast feed, powered by Acast Plus. Uh, hope you're enjoying all these tour podcasts. There is still a chance to catch some, though they're selling out very fast. Uh, we, in fact, Sheffield on the 7th of March sold out. Uh, but check the theatre website for returns. Uh, Monday, the 11th of March, Adam Buxton and Lemsis A in the Leicester Square Theatre sold out. But you can get tickets for the Warwick Arts Centre, where I'm talking to Lindsay Santoro and the Exploding Heads internet phenomenon, and at Bedford on the 21st, where I'm talking to Olaf Falafel and my old friend Al Murray. I'm at Glasgow uh, on the 27th of March, sold out, Susie McCabe and Fred McCauley, and then at Hull on the 28th of March with Tommy Cannon and Bob Morton. Uh, there are three tickets left as I talk to you so get there quick if you want to come and see that also this richardherring.com slash come and see me on tour doing stand-up for the first time in six years richardherring.com slash ballback coming lots of places around England and some places in Scotland uh, and that's about it for the moment all right sit back relax and enjoy rahalastapa Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, welcome to Rich Sharing's Leicester Square Theatre Podcast with me, Rich Sharing. And my guest this week is Louis Theroux. It's very exciting. It's a very good one. I've seen it already, and it's excellent. This show is sponsored by Fallen London. It's an award-winning story-based text adventure game. You can play it for free in your browser. It's set in the reign of Queen Victoria. Sounds brilliant. Your time-travelling finger could go back there. London's been stolen and dragged below ground to a vast cavern where hell is close, immortality is cheap, and the wine is made of mushrooms. It sounds like Shepherd's Bush Post Office. Fallen London offers you different stories depending on your character's choices, who you piss off, who you seduce, who you beat up, and hundreds more. It's free to play and has been going for six years. There are 1.2 million words of darkly funny stories to enjoy, and you can sign up at failbettergames.com, r at slash rhlstp, that will come up on the screen, won't it, Chris? To get a treat just for rehearsal, listeners slash viewers. Do support our sponsors. They've put some money into making these shows viable, and you get them for free as a result. So go to failbettergames.com slash RHLSTP. Now let's enjoy Richard Hanks, Lester Square, the podcast with Louis Farouk. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome a man who loves the movie mistake Robert Webb show. That is his favourite show. It's Richard Herring. Wow. Gosh. You're so much better than those pricks we had in last week. They were... They were idiots. I was going to give one of them this T-shirt last week, but then I thought, no, they're all such, they're such dicks. I'm not going to do that. So uh, I was going to give this to someone who the, the first person I could see wearing. I paid a pound badge, uh, but I can't see anyone wearing one. And it's like people are looking away. They're saying, "Please don't let me have the. Please don't give it to me, Richard. Who's got one? There you go. That lady. That's nice. There. That's. You've got one. <laughs> it's not here. I just got one. You could be lying, but that's. 
That's the allure of the feminine form to Richard Herring. He's, if a woman says, please give me your T-shirt, you want my shirt as well? Have you already seen my nipple? There it is again. Don't, I only show this one because the other one's really weird. That's, got, that's the one without talcum powder. What's happening to me? What have I become? I used to be on the proper telly. What's happening to me? So we're going to... This guy's very... This guy wants to have a chat, so let's talk to you before we can. What's your name, sir? Steve. Steve, have you been to the show before? You won't. You've listened to them all, never been. It's very exciting being here in person, isn't it? I can actually spit on you from here. Um, and uh, what's been your favourite uh, Rich Chains Less Square Theatre podcast in the past so far? Uh, that was a good choice. That is one of the correct choices. Uh, so, uh, uh, what do you do for a living? You're a project manager. Yeah, it's like, it's what, like kids do at school, right? There. So, that you're, the kids at school, I did one about the peelers, Robert Peel. Would you come in and go, yeah, Richard, that's well, well done. You manage. Is that the kind of thing you do? What was the last project you managed? Credit cards. God, your, your life is much more boring than mine. <laughs> Thanks for coming to the show. Uh, so, uh, and there's a lovely young lady here. What's your name? Meredith, that's a nice name. And uh, what do you do for a living? You're a student. What are you studying? Maths. What is the differential? What's the differential of 2x? Two, is that right? Yeah. All right, well done. <laughs> Well, are you studying at university? Yeah, you should have got that a bit quicker. <laughs> what is seven times eight? Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> the students today, as much, I've got two A-level maths, proper hard A-levels from when it was hard. I could tell you seven times eight like that. 56. So, um, I know 12 times 12 is 144. Look at that, bang. Just know that. I know that just off the top of my head. We used to have to learn times tables. Have you ever learned a times table in your life? Yeah, you have done. What's, what's seven times eight? 56. That's good. You've got, you can remember. That is the important thing. Right, so um, we're going to crack on. Oh, before we crack on with the show, I have to uh, do the one thing from this. I nearly forgot. Uh, this is the, it's from Francisco J. Banos. I mean, really? Seriously? <laughs> We got we got a lot of we got a lot of foreign listeners to this podcast. Uh, Paco, that's my name, short for Francisco. What? <laughs> uh, I was born in and live in Spain, so I am right. Uh, there's a lot of Spanish fans. Very, this is how a lot of Spanish people learn English. There's a lot of Spanish people going around calling people cool cunt, calling people cunts. I love British comedy, so he backed the Kickstarter campaign for Rahalastapa. I think I forgot to do that, didn't I, at the top of the show? That's unusual. And uh, Spanish people only know the Monty Python films and Mr. Bean, and a few of them remember Benny Hill. As you can imagine, Paco feels very lonely. <laughs> He'd be willing to be adopted or to marry into a nice British family. Please. Just turn weird, hasn't it? I mean, if, anyone wants to, if anyone wants to marry and become Mrs. or Mr. J. Banos... Do get in touch with the podcast, and we'll let you know. Uh, so, uh, yeah, well, it's the Richard Chinese Leicester Square Theatre podcast. I don't think I said that. Uh, and will you please welcome my guest uh, today? Very excited uh, to have him on. He is probably best known as the Park Ranger in the film Take a Peek. <laughs> it's Louis Theroux, ladies and gentlemen. Louis Theroux. Thank you for coming in. 
sit down here, pull up and pick up that microphone, then you talk into the microphone in a traditional manner. Very po- surprisingly popular, Louis. Surprisingly popular. I didn't know that many people had seen Take a Picture. <laughs> It's a very popular film. It is a good film, but uh, I, I thought it was underappreciated. <laughs> it turns out uh, it found its audience. <laughs> it did. <laughs> they're all here. They're hoping for the number two where you'll take your trousers off. That's yeah. what that. Because you were involved. This is a porn film you were in. Yeah. And a proper porn film. It was released. It even. I was living. Uh, it was uh, in New York around the time I made uh, Take a Peek. Uh, <laughs> what, what, the the backstory is I was making a documentary about the porn industry. Yeah. And um, the, the, the co- it was part of a series called Weird Weekends, and the concept of the series was that I would get involved in outre lifestyles. And so the porn one, I thought, well, wh- wh- what should I do to get involved? And naturally, it seemed like I should be in a porn film. And that it felt safer in some way to be in a gay porn film. LAUGHTER uh, so uh, I got cast as a, in, a not, in a non-sex role uh, as a park ranger, and um, <laughs> it was called Snowbound while we were shooting it. The concept yeah. was that we were, uh, we were, it was a skiing party, and these guys had gone to the mountains outside Los Angeles, and then a convict had escaped from the local prison. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> And quite a sexy, young, buff, uh, muscly co- convict. And, and, and I played the park ranger, and I arrive at their house, and I, and I say, um, good evening, gentlemen. I'm just out here... I can remember the, <laughs> the lines. So cool. uh, I'm just out here telling everybody about a, an escape from a local prison. Uh, take a look at this composite. I kept saying composite. I couldn't remember, like, what was the English way of saying What was the American way? And, and, um, and if you see anyone, just give me a call. And, then, and they have a look at it, and one goes, oh, he's kind of cute. <laughs> and, and, and then, and then, and then in, I think subsequently like, the convict arrives, yeah. and uh, they get to know each other. Yeah. And um, I don't want to spoil the ending. <laughs> But the funny thing was, I was living in New York, and, and I went to my local uh, video store. To, I was re- we still rented videos in those days. That's that's really dating dating <laughs> me, isn't it? Went to the video store to to, to get a, a movie out, and it was on, and Take a Peek was there on the shelf, and I thought, wow, that thing that I made is actually there. It's a real it's a real film, and. Um, I didn't rent it, but I do have a uh, I do have a copy of it. Yeah, we should do another of these. I'll bring it along, and we'll kind of do like uh, we know one of those e- like a director's evening where they just talk scene by scene what I was thinking when I when we As made take the part a part ranger though, aren't you? Weren't you in character a little insulted that the men didn't want to have sex with you? They're going. It's been quite nice to go. Do you want to have sex with me? Go, no. Well, no, we'll uh, you know, one of the weird things was they'd, got, they'd asked for my <laughs> measurements for the uniform, right? Yeah. And then when I arrived, the, I, got, I put the uniform on, it was three sizes too small. And so the only conclusion was that they'd asked for my measurements so they could make sure they got me the wrong size. <laughs> uh, and, then wh- wh- I know, and then whether or not I, I had a sort of sexual dimension, you know, I'd like to think that, like, I was a sort of the unattainable... <laughs> Tantalizing for a lot of authority figure. Yeah, well, a lot of viewers are we really getting off on that? It's like presented with this man that you don't get. To yeah, see it's like Buñuel, that obscure object of desire. That the uh, I think that's what they were thinking of, probably. You know, the, the unattainable uh, icon of sexuality that's never 
never quite reach. <laughs> I think they were. So uh, it was one of my favourite episodes. Uh, uh, I guess this was like early 90s, or was it late 90s? Oh, I shot it in, we shot that in 97, I think. Right, 97. So I remember seeing this, this, uh, the weird weekend about the, I mean, I really loved the series straight away, but the poor mum really made me, because it struck home with me, and, you know, I had occasionally, I occasionally watched pornography, and then I watched your programme, and then all the people, and it was so damaged, and there was the guy called Jay, JJ, who was very memorable, who you said, aren't you worried about AIDS? And he goes, yeah. I don't think about it, so I'm all right. And you kind of go, that's not how the AIDS virus works. <laughs> the AIDS virus isn't going, damn, it's not like a Doctor Who villain. If you think about it, it gets you. Yeah. It's like, don't, as long as you're not thinking about me, it's, damn, I can't get to JJ. Uh, so, and everyone was so vulnerable yes. and, and broken, it actually made me stop watching pornography for a while. <laughs> I remember talking to you about Stuart Lee. I talked to Stuart Lee about it, and I said, you know, this is... You, you watch this programme, it's terrible, it'll make you stop watching porn. And she went, no. <laughs> I'm not going to get on board with that one. But it was... I think it was sort of archetypal of, of that, the, that early work you did, yeah. those, those early... Uh, it's kind of interesting, because it's much more skittish, and it's quite childish in a lot of ways, yeah. I think, than certainly compared to your... To your to your more recent stuff, and but that you still kind of worked it hit home. I think the memorable bit in it is where you're talking to the guy who works. He's straight, but he works in gay porn films. Yeah, and you're going and you take a peek, and I say, "Go on, go on." Well, you say, well, you, you can say. What it. do I say? Go on. <laughs> you say. You, you tell me what you say because I'll get it wrong. Well, is it the bit? There's a bit that makes me cringe. You know, there's some of the stuff that I, I did in the early days, and when you're sort of straining to make a scene interesting or funny, yeah. And you say stuff, and I look back and I think, oh, that was maybe a little bit too far with that one. And there's a bit after, he's, 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 he's what's called gay for pay. And um, so he says uh, he's a straight, he's straight, and, but will work in gay films. And, uh, and then he goes and does his scene, and he comes out afterwards, you know, a gay sex scene with the convict, I think. And he comes out afterwards and he goes, I now I go ski. And he sort of made this face of like, uh, he said, well, I just... Oh, no, that's right. He said, I just made uh, $300, right? And I like, kind of like boasting. And, and I sort of took... I kind of rankled, you know? Like, yeah. oh, well, bully for you. And I, so I go, uh, yeah, but you were going down on a man. <laughs> <laughs> I know, this is terrible, isn't it? And then he said, yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> and then that rankled even more, right? Because then I'm thinking... Well, what I said, which was, oh, come on, you enjoyed it. <laughs> I know, that one, that's the bit where I, th- I look at it now and I think, because um, he looked pained at that point. Well, and this... we had a little rapport going, and uh, I sort of slapped him in the face. Well, it was, it was a very bold thing. I mean, you're sort of going, you must have enjoyed it a bit, you know, you were yeah. like, you're enjoying it, you must have been enjoying yeah. it, you must enjoy it, you know, and he's, he's really uncomfortable. But I think somehow that, it does, you know, weirdly enough, watching them again, because they're on Netflix, so I've kind of watched, I've gone back and watched a lot of them, uh, and those early ones, they did, there are moments you think, oh, that is, that is a bit pathetic right. <laughs> but it's uh, compared to yeah yeah compared compared they're just childish they're just because yeah. you're a young young yeah. guy i mean I, but at the time i watched them and enjoyed yeah. them because i was a young guy as well yeah. uh but pathetics that's quite strong i said like some bits make me cringe i don't think i said any of it was pathetic <laughs> i was uh i was just giving you a bit of uh, is that what this show's like you I just was... bring people out and you insult them <laughs> 
I was giving you a bit of the Louis Theroux treatment back, my friend. Then you know how it feels. Now I know how Troy yeah. felt when I said that. Go on. What, what, what's so pathetic about these shows that I made? They're puerile is possibly a more... Um, oh, a right, better, that's all right, yeah. yeah. Puerile I can live with. But then you've pathos, got... actually, we, we always, I always used to say, where is the pathos? Yeah. You know, even in the weird weekends days, I, I, two-thirds of the way through, in a sort of third act, I'd say, like, we need a moment of pathos where our, our, our sort of designated um, person who's involved in the, in the weird lifestyle, be it JJ or whoever... Uh, where they're shown, after having sort of been treated as somewhat silly, they're shown for, in, in a position of vulnerability. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. So is that what you meant when you said pathetic? <laughs> pa- pa- pathos. Yeah, yes. I guess, I guess that was. Yeah. They, but they were, no, they're very, they're very, uh, <laughs> despite their, their basic patheticness, they are very, <laughs> no, they're, they're, they're very moving, and, and you do get into, into being with the people. It's, it's, there's, I mean, there's a weird voyeurism in them, I suppose, as well. You're picking on people who are... You're choosing people who are... Um... So they're voyeuristic. <laughs> well, you're choosing pathetic. people who are... Who are, are, are a lot of the shows are, are people who are broken in some way. Yeah. Uh, which is, I think it's interesting to see it, because as I say, I think that, that poor mum really did affect the way I looked at, uh, at my life and uh, other people's life and your own culpability and responsibility in that. So it was a very powerful episode as well. And the follow-up that I watched today, which I don't think I'd seen before, where you go back in... Yeah. 12 years time and again you're a bit more mature and, uh, and, it's, and you see JJ again and he then reveals that his baby had just died when he was when he was doing it so yeah. it's this it gives this amazing context to it that to go back and one of the one of the actors has killed themselves yes and uh, it was uh, well I, I I try not to go back and, and revisit stories but uh, it's sort of a rule I have uh, that that you know, I don't know. You, I, some people get over-interested in their own oeuvre, you know, and it's a bit tedious. Do you know what I mean? I do know. Like George very, Lucas, very much like that. George Lucas going back and saying, like, I'm going to completely redo... Which was the one... And he just sort of did a, added some CG. Yeah. Uh, like, like Jabba the Hutt is going to be completely different <laughs> in this version. And you went and you sat and paid money to go and see uh, Star Wars or anything like that. This is exactly the same. But he obviously was obsessed with improving the special effects. And I have a similar impulse. I strenuously try to resist. But I gave in on that one mainly because um, I'd heard that one of the main characters in the first we're in the first porn doc that I'd done, yeah. had killed himself. And I thought, well, they're, 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 that, that's interesting. And when the, the other thing was that I'd heard that the porn industry had, had died and that as a result of online piracy, basically the job of the male performer, which is what the first one had been about, more than the female performer, the, the male performer no, no longer existed. You know, that, there was no longer enough work for porn performers uh, to get jobs. Yeah. And, and I thought, that's interesting, the death of the industry and the fact that well, there's all these guys, 45-year-old guys, who for 20 years have worked as woodsmen, using it as a technical <laughs> term there for you, and now they, now they can't, get, can't get any work. You, know, you go out to the job centre and they say, what have you been doing for, for 20 years? Like, what are, you, what are you skilled in? You say, well, I can get an erection and I can keep it under <laughs> hot lights. Uh, for, for, for you know a couple of hours at a time, and they say, "Okay, what? Well, we'll get. We'll let you know if anything comes in." <laughs> um, so, uh, I, and so that that was the premise. That was for the premise of the show. And as you rightly say, I went back and 
partly was also seeing what had happened to JJ, who when I first interviewed him had only been in a couple of weeks. And when I went back, he'd actually got out. He, having done it for sort of five or six years, he was now out and leading a normal life. But he, um, he revealed that he had this very sad thing that had happened yeah. to him that had got him in for the first time. Well, but, but all of those people did, did within it. I, the, fun, yeah. the funny thing, the guy, uh, the, the guy talked in the second one, who's forty odd and sort of going, "Oh, I'm not sure I'm going to meet a, a nice woman." And you know, he's 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 in the business, and but he's kind of starting to have thoughts about whether it's the right thing to be doing for his life. But he really reminded me of lots of comedians who uh, do the same. Basically, go, "Oh, I'm forty years old, and maybe myself included. Oh, I really wish I could settle down and be happy." But they still carry on with their, you know, essentially well, porn, it's porn funny porn you lifestyles. No, because actually. Those are so, I've, I've done a number of shows that are about versions of kind of self impersonation, or uh, uh, where you, you you are a version of yourself, uh, but you you sort of prostitute yourself in some sense, yeah. By 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 taking real things about yourself, whether it's your sex life, uh, you know, or it's, it's, or, or in, in wrestling is a bit like that as well. You know, your athleticism, and then you bastardize it and you put it on stage and you mix real things with fake things, and to the point where your psyche becomes confused and and um i i find that really interesting because it's both deeply sad and quite funny and i've always <laughs> felt like like with no offense you know uh, but that the world of stand-up comedy is is, is riddled with that as well no, and, and i've always wanted to make a program about about that about stand-up are comedy. you doing that now to <laughs> <laughs> be a very clever way in <laughs> This I play my myself research. a snooker in my basement and commentate on it. So that's there's an in for you. Uh, so <laughs> is that you saying you would be willing to be in the documentary if I made it? I don't think. I think there are more interesting uh, comedians who are more screwed up than I am. I think if anything, I've. I mean, I pretend, the pro, it is similar because as a comedian, I, well, I play around with mental illness as a comedian and and a, a perception of myself. Uh, and in, in different ways, uh, and so, but there is that danger that it'll be like the cold. It's episode where the guy pretends to be mad, and then he so he can be let out to go, and then he just actually is mad, and so they let him go. Is that so, what you're? Is that what you're? That's why like? I, I thought. I think you worry as a comedian that if you're playing yeah. around with those things, and no, I think exactly. you are sort of, you're sort of skirting around with being you're a crazy person or you're doing something. If you know, playing myself at snooker in the basement, which I'd done fifty six times as a podcast, fifty seven maybe. Uh, <laughs> There are times when I'm doing that and go, this is genuine, my wife hates it and uh, I'm genuinely mad. And there are times when I think I'm in control of what I'm doing and I know why I'm doing it, which is probably more mad than the times I feel mad. So, you know, you are playing around with that and I think sometimes you are, you're revealing a lot of stuff about yourself in your, in your act. Uh, and so, you know, you do sort of think, and that, that's, why, that's why that guy reminded me of a comedian, because he's like, he's doing this act of going, yeah, I should, you know, I'm worried that the, I've, I'm losing connection with my heart. And then you get all these comedians who go, who do these shows, which are finally I'm going to find a wife and rather than sleep around, which I'm sure I've... The guy you're talking about is, is Tommy Gunn. Yeah, Tommy Gunn. And he's an ageing porn performer who's in the second one we did. And, and basically the, 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 what we'd wanted to do was find someone who was at that point where he thought, I've been doing this for 30 years, and he actually was still getting a, a bit of work, mm. but he, 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 he sort of felt in some way disconnected from himself, and he was paradoxically, you know, he was having sex, you know, six or seven times a week with various beautiful women, but couldn't find love. And, and, um, but, and then was kind of, kind of in, in this self-exploratory way saying, you know, I got my heart in the box, 
and I've thrown away the key, and I just got to find the key. And, and, and then you thought, like, is that real, or, or have you just done a lot of acting classes? Yeah, well, that's what it looks like. Yeah. It looks like but it looks like, you know, it looks like a part of the persona. You've lost, conne- you've yeah. lost connection, so you're trying to look more interesting or look like you're going to stop doing this thing. And actually, you just, if you're going to stop doing it, you just stop doing it. You don't, you don't, and I, I've just, you know, I've seen that through lots but of comedians. I have the sense, though, that you would be a good, uh, and I don't want to put you in this, uh, sort of on the spot, Richard. Uh, but, you know, I have the sense that you would be a good um, contributor. Uh, it's what we call the people that I talk to in my programs. Uh, a good contributor in, in, in one of my documentaries. Okay. I actually think that, and I think, I, I, you know, I'm embarrassed to say, and I, I really, I mean that, actually, <laughs> seriously, that I ha- I'm not as familiar with your stand-up as I would ideally like to be. <laughs> I sort of gave up going to see stand-up a few years ago, but um, I, I feel as though if I knew your work better, uh, I, I, the, the, there's a sort of, there's a fragility in you um, <laughs> that's very interesting, and I think it has a sexual... There's a sexual side of you that I'd like to explore. <laughs> Will you put on the Park Ranger outfit? Because then we've got to go. Well, Are you comfortable, you know, going with that, or, or, or is that weird? Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, you've probably talked about that in your stand-up, haven't you? Well, I think like well, I'm doing all twelve of my shows here at the Leicester Square Theatre in August and September. Come and see them all, and then you can see the whole uh, progression. And it's quite an interest. I think it's interesting to do that to go back over twelve. I've done twelve shows in twelve years. More or less, I think I had one year off, so it's like 12. I could probably name the show. You've, you, you do very good. Like You've got, always got a good title, good posters. Yeah, but you uh, never come and see them. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I think you, uh, that goes on a journey from me... Uh, you know, the first, well, the first one of those about the first one's about my relationship with Jesus, and then there's, uh, right. there's, but then the, the ones after that, Christ the, on a bike, Christ on a bike, yeah, and then Talking Cock, which wasn't really about me so much, except that I'm obsessed with, sex, well, certainly was obsessed with the sex, uh, but uh, the, then the ones after that, I think you go on this uh, this ups and down curve of yeah. kind of loneliness and wanting to be in a relationship, but not finding, but you know, not finding a relationship. Are you comfortable talking about about this? <laughs> I'm not trying to be weird. I'm ju- no, because were you? Is it? Were you a sex addict? I don't. I was not. Uh, <laughs> not in the. Uh, I mean, not compared to some of the people you've talked to. Not in, your, in your things. Uh, no, I think not. Not by the standards of some. Uh, you know, the Russell. Do you Brand know the or, definition? Uh, <laughs> just to be honest. I get to sex and then I'm so excited and I can't get beyond. Uh, I think, you know, I was definitely promiscuous and I definitely wasn't really interested in being in a relationship. So I think that's, you know, I'd have relationships for a bit and then I would, I would have very itchy feet and want to get back to where I was before. So it was, it was like, a, you know, it was a, a, a thing that I had not a problem with because it was quite good. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, on the whole, it was, you know, there was, there was ups and downs with it. Hey, uh, but uh, you know, I wouldn't say compared to certain. You know, there's, there are certainly were a lot more voracious and out of control comedians than myself. Because for it for it to be an addiction, and it is a contentious point, because some people don't believe that you know sexual addiction exists, but cl- clinically, you should have. Um, it should it should be interfering negatively. It should be sabotaging your life in some way, yeah. interfering with your work. And it doesn't sound like it was. No. It was, hel- it was helping my work, if anything. 
because then I could do jokes about it. I know, it, it definitely, you know, but I think there were... I was you, didn't, pro- you didn't leave... Because really, you know, Russell Brand, I've read his, you know, my book, you work in... Yeah. Do you remember there's a bit where he spits an almond's face? That's in the book. I'm not yeah. giving you some inside gossip. Uh, so there's a darkness there that he, no, he's acknowledged. No, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't... I always liked women, and I hope that uh, I was not unpleasant to anyone. So, I, I, you know, I think it's... I, it wasn't. It wasn't the same. It wasn't like a, it, there wasn't a darkness in it. It was just I was a bit lonely. I suppose is the. Is you would just get bored. Like you would have uh, sex with a woman. Like, I'm not interested in having sex with you. Wouldn't it be if you? I would have thought if you were a sex addict, it'd be easier just to keep having sex with the same person, <laughs> <laughs> rather than have to go and find uh, new people. <laughs> I think that I believe that would be the challenge with someone. Like, or like a voracious, sexually voracious, but you would get bored in, in. You would just have a low boredom threshold in the relationship. Um, <laughs> yeah, now it's become me, and I don't think this is me. <laughs> I don't think it's me because I was, I was too, I was too shy. I would, people had to come and talk to me. I would never go and chat someone up. When Russell Brand was here doing this. I mean, he was sort of straight out into the audience to chat with people and ask them questions. <laughs> and he was very full on, you know, and I found it quite, I found that sort of a bit embarrassing that you would behave in that way. So I find a lot of... When oh, you interviewed him? When I interviewed him after, after the show, after he was the sort, show. Of, sort of straight out to meet the audience. Wow. Now, he wouldn't have been that interested in you and you. And you. <laughs> he chose the wrong show to come to, really. <laughs> It's mainly men who work in IT here, so it's a, it's a chat. This is the one show where the gents' toilet queue is very long and the women can go in and go to the toilet. But there were, because he was on, there were, so there were some women in the audience. Uh, and maybe because of you. Uh, but no, I mean, I think, it's, I think it's very fascinating, all of that, but I think it's, uh, I mean, I, I was, I, I think it was, I was quite, I found it quite difficult to uh, be, uh, on stage, um, I was uh, able to be rude and be gregarious, but in real life, I just, I always found that embarrassing. I find it embarrassing when comedians are just basically hanging by the bar hoping, you know, and chatting up every single woman that passes. Well, but you said that you were sexually voracious, right? Well, well I'd have... I'd, so I'd, how were you doing well, it Well, I was... I was <laughs> women were coming up and, uh, and... I was meeting women who, who would talk to me, but I... They were I think, coming up to when you. I got a bit, when I got... In my that 30s, doesn't work like in that. My Look, I'm a man, and you don't just sit around. Women don't just come up Look to you. Look at the moneymaker. Uh, after... What I did... I'm when, looking at the moneymaker. <laughs> In my 30s, I, I got a bit better at uh, realising that you have to be proactive in terms of meeting people. If you, want, <laughs> if you want to meet a friend or have sex with someone, you've got to talk to people. I did a show called The Twelve Tasks of Hercules Terrace, and one of the things I did in that was I dated 50 women in 50 consecutive days. That's right. Uh, and I do, that's why I'm partly remembering that, a thing. And that made me realise how that it was actually quite easy to meet people and be polite and just be honest and then and you know and, and chat to people it was very easy to meet people and i think before that i was sitting at home a lot in my house and going i don't know where you know how do i go or how do i meet people i think now it's it's so easy to meet people because you just you know you've got tinder and you've got the internet and it's insanely easy to meet people if you if you want to get into that but i was always quite shy so i don't think it wasn't i don't put myself in the same uh, bracket as some of those uh, comedians but you know I, I because i was single until i was 40 really i had girlfriends, you know, I've, I've slept with quite a lot of people, I suppose. I always think that the, the difficult bit can't be... <laughs> it's no pussy boasting. <laughs> let that go. 
I'm deeply That's the ashamed. other thing about sex addicts. They go, I've got a real problem. I just can't stop sleeping with, with beautiful women. You, think you, that, you don't think that's a problem. That's just a, a pretext for you to boast about it, isn't it? Uh, but I know you wouldn't do that. For me, the, the, the other thing is that it's not so much uh, in theory. It is all theoretical, clearly. But, but it wouldn't be... It's not so much it would be tricky necessarily to meet a beautiful woman and uh, have a relationship. But then how do you, how do you end it? Like, wh- how are you moving on to the next woman in that scenario? <laughs> Well, I mean, a lot of them weren't what wouldn't be classified as relationships that you have to end, I think, in that situation. But I, I think I, I just realised being honest was the best way to... Even if you're a cynical person, being honest is the best. If you want to date people, just be honest about it. Because there's lots of people out there and lots of, you know... I think there's lots of this men have like the idea that women... This well, is dating tips for Richard Herring. Lots, of, lots of men have the idea that women, you know, don't want to have sex or don't want to be in relationships. But there's an equal amount of women who want to behave badly as there are men. That's how it works. There has to be uh, for, for it to work in a consensual I'm not sure fashion. if that's true. Well, it, it is. So if you want, there's enough people that if you want that, go, go and find those but people how, who want But you that. know, I mean, this isn't, uh, you know, there are gay men that uh, cottage, right, on Hampstead Heath. Yeah. And, and I'm fine with that. But there are no, um, <laughs> there's, as far as I know, there aren't lesbian women cottaging on Hampstead Heath. No, but I think it's more than, you know, it's very... So doesn't that disprove I think it's still you... very easy. That's a certain type of uh, someone who wants sex in that way. I, think, I don't think that's about... So where are the women cottaging? Tell me that. <laughs> you have to go and, you know, talk to women and, and buy them a drink and then that sort of, you know. I think, oh, you, I I think I, what I realised from that, doing that dating thing was that just if you behave like a reasonable human being and are polite and ask some questions and wash yourself, <laughs> then you, you've got a pretty good chance of... And, you, and if you actually... The best thing about it was realising that... Um, you know, I just, I'd literally just ask friends of friends. And so there was no, let's put together two people who'd be good together. But a lot of people, you'd meet someone and go, oh, no, that's not my type of person. But if you had to spend an evening talking to them, you would often like them. You know, you'd, you'd like them in a way you weren't expecting at the beginning of the evening. So you'd make a prejudgment. So I think all this Tinder and stuff's all well and good. But actually, it was sort of like a very slow speed date. Mm-hmm. And I, in that thing, I met about six women that I would, would really like to have had relationships with. It was very, very confusing for me, and I did end up going out with one of the one of the women in the end for a, for a year or so. Uh, but it was, you know, because I was going out with fifty women, it was kind of quite hard to forge a relationship. Do you want us to have a second date? I can't. I'm seeing forty eight other women. <laughs> <laughs> so you got to the end, and the ones you'd liked had met someone else or gone back to their old boyfriends or whatever. So it was, you know, it was uh, confusing, but very interesting time. But uh, yeah, you, you, you need a different comedian than me. I'm fine. Talking of. Uh, <laughs> I'm a nice guy. Talking of that, so what about Jimmy Savile then? Ah. <laughs> so uh, you met, you did a, you did a series uh, that was called. Uh, let me get this right. Uh, when Louis met loads of sex offenders, and uh, <laughs> some of whom turned out to be innocent. Uh, then uh, <laughs> you met, you, you interviewed Jimmy Savile. Max Clifford. Uh, Do you think it was talking to you that turned them into sex offenders? Uh, you know, I, I, I wish I could say that talking to me would have cured them of being sex offenders, <laughs> which it seems to have done in this case. <laughs> we've worked out a lot of things. We've worked out. 
I feel a lot better. I'm very. It, it was. Uh, you know, what can I say about that? It's 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 a toxic area to talk about, but I'm I'm happy to go there. Well, it's sort of astonishing. I've just read I've just read the uh, In Plain Sight book. Yeah, by his Dan Dan Davis. Dan Davis book about Jimmy Savile, which is uh, just utterly bewildering. That because. I mean, you know, I think there was rumours about him, as I was saying backstage to you, that me and Stuart Lee in uh, This Morning, We Should Not Do, did two jokes about Jimmy Savile, one of which was us uh, dressed as Jimmy Savile at the beginning of a show. It was the day of the London Marathon, and we said, all right, now then, now then, uh, it's the day of London Marathon. I hope nobody dies. If they do, Bagsy, I take them to the mortuary. Uh, <laughs> And we did another joke, which was like the thing cutting out for a bit, and then it came back to us, and then me saying them. And apparently that's what Jimmy Savile and his brother get up to at the weekend. Uh, so we'd heard these rumours, but I'd kind of assumed that necrophile uh, rumour was uh, just an urban myth kind of thing. Because there's no way, how do you prove that someone's I a necrophile? I think necrophile is, is one of the few that is still unconfirmed. Right. I know that Paul Gambaccini has said that... Um, that he, I don't, I think he can't be claiming to have witnessed it, but no. I, I think he said that. It, I think what the story, I think what happened in that one was that he was a, um, he volunteered a lot. Jimmy Savile volunteered a lot at Leeds General Infirmary, and in his book, which is uh, called As It Happens, he talks about uh, his fascination with death in general. He refers to the time that he spent with his his departed mother, the Duchess, when she, they, were, they were Catholics, and according to you know, tradition, she was laid out um, in a wake, and he said that fi- the five days he spent next to her dead body were the happiest days of his life. And he, would also, uh, he also talks a lot about the great, wonderful, and beautiful privilege of being with someone as they die. And, um, you know, and some of the more sentimental passages in his book are about that. So he definitely had a fascination with death. There's also in a one or two, you know, I've read most of the inquiries uh, into his, his offending. There's, there's lots of them. You know, and anywhere he ever did any voluntary work or any kind of work, BBC, all the police, relevant police authorities, West Yorkshire Police, Sussex Police... Leeds, General Infirmary, Broadmoor, Stoke Mandeville, they've all published inquiries. And in one of them, and I can't remember which one, there's a reference to him having taken a glass eye from a dead body. Did you know this? Yeah, yeah. And so that's written up as the offence is interfering with a dead body. Right. So it's easy to see how that could be construed as a sexual act. Yeah, but people were talking about this. So they were talking about this. I I feel like I went into a lot of detail about... Probably more than anyone was interested in. But that's, that's, I've sort of I've, I've grappled with, you know, as someone who uh, made a documentary about him and um, failed, you know, I spent ten days with him and failed to reveal the fact that he was, you know, one of the most prolific sex offenders, you know, yeah. of modern times, possibly. But I feel so. I feel a sense of responsibility that I, I, I'm trying to go back and figure out what. How did I miss that? Although interestingly, one if you look at the, I'm just going to go on and on about this, aren't I? But one of the, um, if there's there's a little bar chart where they've co- collated all the reported incidents of of, of offences, and, and do you know that 2001, uh, the year that I was with him for a, ten days or so, there's no victims, right? <laughs> Did you dress up in your park ranger outfit and put him on? <laughs> <laughs> he was put up for a year. 
Well, I mean, but you know, everyone was letting this go. Every, so everyone was, people were seeing this happening, and, and it was a. I, I can't understand it because I remember growing up in the seventies and saying, "Don't get into people's cars." If people knew there were paedophiles, and they knew there were people preying on. I suppose it was. I think. I suppose in the seventies, maybe they were dividing it between children and then sort of. You know, teenagers were it was a different thing, or I don't know. It's just like I think there's an element of element of that that he, he would maybe, yeah, may. I mean, it, it, as soon as you start to try and understand it, I think you're already on a slippery slope because uh, there, there was a part of it that was just people not wanting to believe the worst, you know. Yeah, and, and I think. None of us wants to believe that someone we know is a sex offender. And in fact, life would become unlivable if you assumed the worst about people on a daily basis. Yeah. I mean, I think the fact that nobody, you know, that it got to beyond his death before anyone was taking it seriously, it's not, it's not like you can, you can say I'm, you're an idiot for not knowing, noticing at the time. And he obviously wasn't going to be giving that sort of stuff away. To you within that interview, but it's no, and, and um, you know I've watched the program. You know when Louis met Jimmy, you know uh, since the uh, revelations came out, and and I feel as though it still stands up as a show. You know, and actually a lot of the pieces are there. It's just the uh, the, the little keystone is is not is not there. There's a scene in which um, I knew when I was making it that there was. That his sexual side, I had not, uh, I'd not really uh, fully understood, and um, I, I, I always feel, you know, as you may have noticed, you know, I, I feel like I feel I like to get to know who you, so who someone is, uh, you, you know, in their sexual dimension. You know, uh, it, it sounds a little bit weird, but um, <laughs> you know, I feel like that's it's it's, tr- it's it's such an important part of who someone is, and with Jimmy Savile, uh, clearly. No one really knew. Like he'd, he'd never been married. He'd never been linked to any girlfriends. Some people thought he might be gay. There were rumours that he was uh, a paedophile. That, as you say, he was he was in, interested. It had an unhealthy interest in, in corpses. There was a rumour that he was interested in disabled people. Um, and I'd heard all these rumours. Although you know, not in a sort of I work at the BBC and I. As you know, I'm in the corridors of power, so I hear these rumors. It was more just sort of playgrounds. Yeah. You know, people would say, or at school, or, or friends' mums, or you know, you say, "Oh, my friend's mum said that he fiddled with." You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how you would hear about anything. Oh, right, friend of a friend. You know, like and like a lot of rumors, you don't give them much credence. But I knew that there was an answer that a question that hadn't been answered to do with what his interests were. And there's a scene in the documentary where I'm in his mother... I'm in the room in Scarborough where he keeps his mother's clothes. And, um, and he dry cleans them once a year. And, 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 and his relationship with his mother, it, it comes out how, how you know, uh, intense it was. You know, almost um, obsessional. And um, and there's a weird photo that we look at where he's his mum sort of like wrinkly old sort of lady sitting you know with sort of granny glasses in a chair and Jimmy's like sitting with his legs stretched out kind of at her feet um, wearing this um, sort of I don't know if it's a smoking jacket or a really short uh, dressing gown that just comes to the sort of the top of his thighs. Yeah. Reading a book or something with his like his, his sort of mid early seventies when he was at the height of his platinum 
long platinum hair, and there's something really odd about the photo. And and we have a conversation, and I sort of say, "What you know?" I basically, and what I'm saying is like, "What are you? You know, what is your thing? You know?" <laughs> and I, but what I say is like, "Oh, um, you, you know, you've never been linked to anyone. You've never had girlfriends." And and I and I don't nail it. You know, I don't get to what it is. He just says, "I've, I've got lots of girl friends that are girls." You know, you know, plenty, but but girlfriends never. You know, and um, and it, it, we kind of it, it, we let it go. But when I look back, that's the moment where it, I, I, it sort of. It's in my hands and it slips away. I'm going to blame you. (laughs) (laughs) I've decided. It's, it's, it's utterly fascinating and horrible. It's horrific. I mean, that book's horrific. All the th- it's just such an horrific, unbelievable subject. But I don't, you know, but I think maybe, you know, in, it is in, in show business that people are so weird that... And, and it, 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 he was very clever about it. I think all the dressing up in stupid clothes is a way of distracting, isn't it? You don't take him seriously as a I think the most revealing... Uh, possible, well, one of the most revealing things in the show is the moment when... After I've gone to bed, like the one bit I'm not involved in, uh, my director stayed up and continued to film semi-secretly. Yeah. And Jimmy talked about how he would, um, when he ran nightclubs, he would type, if, he, if there were kids in there that he didn't like or, or giving him hassle or being leery, he would, uh, he said, I never took them to the police. I would, or never chucked them out, never threw anybody out. I would take them down to the boiler room and tie them up and leave them there to the end of the night to intimidate them. And he said, and the police came. You know, normal, when I used to do this story, I'd do a Jimmy Savile, and I'd kind of touch a Jimmy, but it's almost like it's got to the point where just to do the, the voice feels a bit weird, doesn't yeah. it? But anyway, he would say to the police, they'd come around, and the police said, hey, Jim, you know, you were a bit heavy with that lad. And he'd say, you know, your daughter comes in here. Tell me, and I'll let those filthy slags have a, you know, uh, have a go at her. And then, all right, Jim, you didn't give, didn't give him half enough. And it's basically, what it is, is that his ability to face police, to cultivate relationships with authority figures, including police, and um, his ability to, in, in, in situations where he's faced with direct accusations of criminal behaviour, and he, he overawes the police, you know, yeah, and this and, and again, since he died, it's come out that the police went and uh, went to him with allegations of sexual abuse and sexual offending, and he, he sat down with him and he just kind of bulldozed them, you know. I mean, I find it that amazing because I was sort of speak. I, I, I'm someone who sort of wants to confess to things that I haven't done. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I feel like I go around like if someone. Uh, says something terrible has happened, I start feeling responsible, or, or, or if a policeman says something to... You know, I don't know, I just, I'm sort of drenched in a sort of weird anxiety. <laughs> um, and, and so the idea that you've prolifically offended, and then the police come, and instead of getting the sweats, and uh, you, you just sort of... You just kind of face them down. It's amazing to me. But that's what, I think, more than anything else, whatever you call that, chutzpah, Gaul, he had that. Yeah. And I think that's how he got away with it. And do you think it's a conspiracy that goes all the way to the top, that there were, you know, gangs of these people operating together and protecting each other, or do you think it's... Uh, I, uh, 
You know, I, I would say I, I don't believe that. But then, you know, I didn't believe Jimmy Savile was a sex offender. No. So, so I sort of feel like my judgment is... is it's terrible. It's been called into... <laughs> why, am I, why am I asking you anything? I mean, some of the I stories... I didn't even think you first, were a sex addict. When, when, the, when, it, when, the, uh, when the stories came out, some of them sound like alien abductions. You know, they're so... When they say the people saying, oh, we went into a dressing room in the BBC and 30 cameramen and, you know, every, all the audience were all fucking each other. There's those, those sort of stories that sound like alien abduction stories. So I think it's, that's, that's how you... You know, because obviously there are fantasists, you know, there might be fantasists within this many, many true, true stories. So it's very easy to go, oh, these are just crazy people saying this and this and this. So you can deflect it with one thing. But then I start thinking, well, maybe that story, maybe there was. Maybe there weren't all the cameramen. I just can't believe it. Knowing I haven't I heard that exact story. Well, there's a story about going in and lots of, you know, lots of the crew being involved in... in wow, in I didn't stuff. know that. Which report but, is that in? I don't know. I saw, I saw it somewhere. But, you know, it just doesn't sound like it could be true, knowing what you know about how the BBC works and how also the way that people would go... Some would go, oh, this is a bit weird. <laughs> maybe, maybe I should mention that. I, but, you know, there's loads of things that people don't mention. People I tend to think he would have been offending, you know, uh, most of the time privately, you know, in yeah. his caravan, um, in his own dressing room. Uh, uh, the idea of masses of cameramen being involved, uh, <laughs> I think that way, I think he would have got caught. Uh, and I don't tend to think, you know, I, don't, I mean, I'm a skeptic about conspiracy theories, not absolutely, but I always think, you know, you've got to rule out stupidity first before you leap to a conspiracy theory yeah. you know and so uh i, I you know I, my knee-jerk view is that uh there, there, do, there isn't a sort of well-organized pedophile ring that's existed for years in, at the top echelons of, of power but I, I you know if the evidence comes out that it it's real I, you know i'll believe it yeah i mean what i found surprised like a lot of the people who were interviewed about jimmy savile were immediately then arrested by people. You know, like Max Clifford was on, and Paul Gambaccini was interviewed Well, he, Max very Clifford quickly. came out and, and, and said, um, you know, uh, you know I, I can't really do the voice, but uh, <laughs> he goes, um, you know, celebrities are getting very, very nervous. Uh, and, and a lot of people think that, you know, it's going too far. And a lot of celebrities uh, can't remember what happened 20, 30 years ago. And, 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 and then it turned out like, no, well, Max Clifford was very nervous. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and then he was brought in and, and arrested. And, um, yeah, he's doing porridge as well. No, any clue when you saw him, when you spent lots of time well, with him? Well, uh, <laughs> early on, you know, I remember, you know, I think I saw you quite soon after the first exposure documentary. Yeah. And, and, and uh, we were talking about this. And, and, and do you remember around that time, there were a lot of whispers about who's going to be next? Yeah. And, um, and I can't remember who, but someone said to me, Max Clifford's in the frame. And I remember thinking, I wasn't that surprised, mainly because I didn't have any inkling that he was a, um, a sex offender. I didn't have any privileged information. But I was, I, I was aware that, you know, what his, his main, you know, his a, a reputation management was what he did. He would either take you down or build you up. He, stars, celebrities would pay him. And, and, what he, and all he would do, really... Would, pay, would be pay, sort of pay showgirls or, 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 or women who are willing to be paid to be seen on the arm of his clients. When I was with him, it was Simon Cowell. So he got a stripper from Spearmint Rhino 
to take photos with Simon Cowell and say that she was Simon Cowell's girlfriend and sort of feed the tabloids stories, which would then prevent them from reporting real stories about whatever Simon Cowell was actually interested in. Yeah. And so I think that what, you know, about which one could speculate all night. He likes, <laughs> he likes putting on kind of contests between singers and stuff. That's my, he loves judging them. Right. That's what he's really interested in. That's what I've heard. And, and, and it, could be, it could actually be as, as, as awful as that. <laughs> but it's a, I mean, that's a frightening thought. Yeah, it is. Uh, but uh, I hadn't heard that rumour, to be honest with you. Um, uh, but, and, and so the idea that, you know, once you see, I think, women as currency, that you pay... Uh, you, pay, you know, go, go out with this bloke, okay? And, and then, if he didn't like you, he would, you know, he, there would be a woman would come and say, "Oh, I've slept with that person," so he'd either hurt you or help you yeah. by by basically paying paying women. And, and I think once you see women as currency in that way, the idea that you're uh, going to pay them to do this, or because what came out of the trial, I think, was that he would promise women stardom or success if they would give him sexual favours. Yeah. And you can see how there's a sort of, there's a spectrum that he's going on, you know, you, you know, sort of tra- more or less trafficking in, in women. So it all sort of, it sort of made sense. Well, they're based sort on of similar in their, this veiled threat that they both, you know, they both clearly would, would, you know, abuse people in whatever way to get where they wanted to go, even outside of the sexual arena. They were just both, it was the power, wasn't it? Yeah. But, but then a lot of, I mean, I suppose that's it. With great power comes great, great. responsibility. Spider-Man was right. Uh, he had a lot of power, but he also, and the other thing that he, he would lie um, a lot. Like when I was with him, I was always aware. He was a really tricky c- c- character. Uh, you know, one of the things he would do the first time I met him, and he would do this to all journalists. He's one of the few people who, uh, before I actually made the documentary, he insisted on a meeting. Uh, normally, one of my rules is that the first time I meet someone on camera, it's the first time I've actually met them. But Max Clifford said, you know, I want to meet Louis before we start filming. So I went along. And the first thing he does when you meet him, he says, he, he just starts saying, of um, course, I don't know if I can say this, is this libelous? He would sort of name a high-profile high, high illusionist magician from America and say, oh, he's gay. He didn't go out with that person. That was all stage-managed. Oh, you know that high-profile uh, member of the royal family? He's gay. Uh, oh, he's gay. That, she's lesbian. And he would sort of, you'd, and you'd sort of think, wow, he's really giving me the scoop. He's like, you can't print any of this course. But you'd sort of, he'd fold you in and, and suddenly you'd have this relationship with him where some things are on the record and some are off the record. And once that exists, you're bound in to a kind of dishonesty with him, a, pa- a pact in which you're go, you're, it's sort of implicit that you're going to observe his rules about what's on the record, what's off the record. And so halfway through I realised, hang on, this isn't working. So I said to him during filming, um, you know, you've got to stop doing it. You, you can't sort of be saying on camera... Yeah, Simon's going out with this um, stripper called Georgina Law. And then when we put the camera down, go, of course, it's, it's all made up. I'm not, none of that's real. You know, that's soul-crushing for me as a journalist to be sort of part of your stage management of a fictional relationship. Yeah. And, and actually, it's much more interesting than for me to try and reveal the truth. So I said to him on camera, I said, like, you know, basically everything you're telling me is bollocks because every time we stop filming, you're saying that it's rubbish. <laughs> and, and, and then, and that was the... It's actually quite a good documentary, that one. <laughs> <laughs> 
I said, so then he goes, he kind of leans back in his chair and he shows his fangs and he goes like, let me just say, I'm on to you and I'm not going to let you do that. And I was like, well, do what? And he goes like, whatever it is you're trying to do. And, and, um, and it, he began, that was after that he began planting negative stories. Have you seen the documentary? Yeah. yeah. It might be easier for you just to watch it. <laughs> it's good. He, said, he starts planting negative stories about me in the papers. Uh... <laughs> And 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 so that and and so I think the point that I was trying to make though was that yeah he's it's all fiction it's all lies it's, yeah. it's just so many constantly lies and um, it's just weird if you don't lie that much you know I, I don't lie I, I I don't think you could ever say that I never lie but you know I don't really lie I feel weird about lying so when you meet someone who lies fluently and easily um, it's quite a weird thing. Yeah, well, people just, you know, it's amazing when you see people who do lie in front, like this, the, the lady in America who's uh, saying she's black and she's white. That's quite a big lie, isn't it, to carry off. And then you kind of think, how the, f- you know, how, de- when you're just scared that but someone you know, would let this gonna, would inevitably happen. That, that, that's slightly different. Her life was sort of founded on a kind of a lie, but it's one thing to have one lie, one very big lie, <laughs> that you can't then go back on. But it's another thing to be lying sort of every day on random things and even lying on things that don't even matter, yeah. you know. But no, no, I mean, I'm not, I'm not pleading. I hold no brief for Rachel. What's her name? Don't, I, can't, I can't pronounce her name, but I know... I, it might I, not even be her name. I'm not that's trying to make that... Like, like, oh, that's cool. We should all pretend to be other races. But I have a degree of sort of sympathy. You know, I don't think it's like being a, uh, a prolific sex offender. <laughs> Better or worse than being there. Um, <laughs> have you met Jennifer Aniston in real life? The thing about the Rachel, the, 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 the woman we were just okay. talking about, is her, is her hair. It's like that's. The, I think it's that's going to be. Is it real? Is it real? Is it a real? Is it the real hair? We'll find out, I suppose, won't we? There we go. Some, sometimes it's you know. Her hair was the blackest thing about her. Yeah. Have you met Jennifer Aniston? Your cousin goes out with Jennifer Aniston. Have you yeah, met Jennifer They're Aniston? engaged. Have you met Jennifer Aniston? Yes. That's all I wanted to know. <laughs> <laughs> what was Nick Clegg like at school? You were at He's school with Nick exactly Clegg. like he is now. What, a big liar, an idiot. <laughs> he just did let everybody down and is a prick. Did you fag for Nick Clegg? Is that, is that you, true? Uh, do people know what fagging is? Well, I, I let them make their own decision <laughs> based on what it sounds like. You woke him up in the morning. All, this is real lowest common denominator stuff, Richard. <laughs> and also, like, if I'm going to give up the goods, why, why shouldn't I be... I should be in a higher-profile forum, because I feel like... <laughs> I'm, I'm giving you... <laughs> I mean, if you appear on a chat show, they they pay you like a thousand quid or something, you know. I'm gonna, I'm gonna and this this is like my pension. I'm going to pay you. I'm going to pay you. These are the, these are the, like this is my seed corn. I'm going to pay you. Get me through the long winter of my career. I'm going to pay you depending on what you spill, what you give. You lost some marks for trying to do your Louis through thing on me. That has, that has cost that has cost you twenty five quid. Right there. Do you, you woke Nick Clegg up in the morning when he was a, he was a bit older than you. And you had yeah, to go and wake I him did, up. Yeah. West, she went to Westminster School, yeah. which, out of all the public schools, 
where which are mainly peopled by idiots from my from my uh, recollection that, that's in you know, snobbery for a start it is but westminster school seems like pretty cool i've been oh, to, i've been I there i didn't know you could, okay and and adam and joe were your it's not friends not cool Adam and Joe were there, and they're, yes, they they're were. normal people. Nick Clegg, up until a few years ago, was a normal person. Yeah. I mean, they're like... It's pro- right in the middle of, of London. It's in, it's in the West End. It's so amazing. you're exposed to uh, normal life. You're not out yeah. in, in a village. You know, a lot of these public schools are out in, in a small village in, in Dorset, aren't they? And, and um, so they're, they're in this kind of weird, self-contained, slightly... Well, what's the word? It's just so insular world of of where all sorts, where a lot of Jimmy Savile-ish stuff takes place, isn't it? In fact, Nick Clegg went to a school that was embroiled in in one of those scandals, and I think there was a sort of paedophile ring among the teachers there. That's not funny. (laughs) Maybe that's that should be his. um, He can blame it on his his upbringing. He could do any any, uh, perceived. Fallibility in his public life, you could say. I haven't had the advantages. Yeah. <laughs> Not funny, is it? It's, no. it's very queasy, isn't it? And I think uh, it, I listened to a couple of these shows, and I was like, you know, a couple of them were from before, like pre Savile, and I was like, I don't think you could say that now. Like, it's just, it, it's a fine line, isn't it? Like, it's quite queasy making going between, oh, it, you know, it, it, it's a joke and it's funny and then no, it's a paedophile and just that word it's like ooh, quite a difficult thing to navigate how do you do that? it's difficult but you know there is sort of there is a humorous line to, <laughs> to tread amongst it all but you know because some well, things it's pressure like- release it's a release valve isn't it? I mean I, I'm a big believer in um, finding humour in macabre places I thought I absolutely have to like, well, I mean, I, in my uh, current show I do um I mean, I don't even know what I did. What I, did. Someone, I haven't had any complaints, really, but one woman complained and said she didn't think child abuse was a subject for comedy. I'm trying to think what the actual stuff was about, but it's, uh, I, I think it was in... Uh, I, I, well, I can't say, because Ben will be annoyed if I mention him again. Uh, but uh, but it, was the, it really is, you know, I think by, it, it, to me, the, to not talk... The reason all this stuff happened was because nobody was talking about it, right? So to start going, you mustn't... You know, I think there are jokes that you shouldn't make about it. Yeah. But, uh, but, but also to not talk about it, to not see the scary, terrifying side of it. People, you know, lots of people said to me, oh, when you have a kid, you won't, you won't find those jokes funny anymore. Uh, and I still find them funny. And I make jokes. I mean, I'm terrified about my daughter dying. That's the, my biggest fear. But I make jokes about my mm. daughter. And I went out the other day and my, my daughter was a bit, wasn't feeling very well. And my wife's friend was round. And I said, oh, well, you know, take her to the doctors. But if she dies, we can just have another one. <laughs> this, is, this one's quite new. And the friend went. <laughs> and, you know, it's a joke because I don't want the worst thing that could possibly happen in my life is my daughter dying. That would be absolutely mm. the worst thing that could happen to me. And I would, you know, I don't know how anyone could cope with that or recover from that. Except that by, you know, I think by laughing at these things, and certainly before they happen, but even I think for a lot of people, you know, I think it helps people to get through that. So, it, you know, if you've had an awful situation, to be able to laugh in the face of it, if you, for example, were in the Holocaust 
or whatever, then some people go, well, you must never joke about that. But then many Jewish comedians have made fantastic mm-hmm. films and jokes about that. And, you know, and mocking Hitler is what people were trying to do while he was there. And he stamped out for that very reason. Because the minute you start laughing at those things, the minute if you... More you know, comedians and uh, the Wehrmacht would have been completely powerless. They were, but they... They, 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 they would be, have been quaking in their, in their Nazi it's cabaret, boots, isn't it? it's, faced it's, with a lineup. Of people such as yourself, they, they, uh, they I'm killed sure them. They, they, you wouldn't have seen them for dust. They killed them. They, they, that's why they stopped it because they knew that the minute you, the, I think especially with fascism, but any any abuse of power, the minute you point, you know, Hitler was ridiculous. Hitler was a ridiculous figure uh, in so many ways, and yet still, man, it's a similar thing to Savile. You know, he managed to make people believe he had this authority, or you know, and and then he has that authority. If you're laughing at him, he completely deflates. I think, you know, they'll talk about, and Hitler Mustache will talk about Charlie Chaplin, the great dictator, was actually, you know, one of the things that got America into the war was, 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 him, was him doing this film. So it's, you know, satire has an amazing power, I think, against, against uh, fascism, and I think comedy has a great power against... About, about laughing at, you know, I think once you can laugh at death and all of these subjects, if it's the right joke, if it's the right way of coming at it, as long as you're not coming and going isn't it funny that people are, you know, you're not laughing at the idea of people being abused, you're laughing at the idea of anyone getting away with it or you're finding the, the, your, your way through it to, to point well, I think, out. I think that's true up to a point, but I tend to think laughter is subversive by definition, but it can be subversive of vice, but it can also be subversive of virtue. And I think there's a lot of negative laughter. Oh, of course, yeah. I'm and, not, and, and not you know, got, saying all jokes are and fine. I, and I'm not, you know, like Bernard Manning famously, you know, certainly uh, it could be racial humour that people find funny, but it's, you know, deeply hurtful or, or no, I destructive. Think it's about, it's about and I think there's probably a lot of Nazi comedy that people in Germany thought was hilarious. Of course. Well, and, you know, there's, I can't remember which film it is, but I keep, you know, people saying oh, you should be able to make jokes about anything and everything's funny, or if it gets a laugh, it's funny. But obviously, no, you know, there's a film where some Nazi guards are making Jewish people dance in the street under gunfire, and all the Nazis are laughing at the Jewish people dancing. Because they're laughing, that doesn't make that funny. That's an unacceptable thing to happen. So but it's it was like funny to not, them. Exactly. But not every joke is funny. But then I think, I think the problem is people think, people hear you joking about something and think by joking about it, you're not taking seriously. Mm. Whereas I think that's not true. I think you can you can tackle a lot of serious subjects. We should say something like, funny now, we shouldn't should, we? Yeah. <laughs> I tried to go into you know Rachel and uh, Nick Clegg was a very deep sleeper. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, so I would go round yeah. about seven fifteen, seven thirty in the morning, first term at Westminster, and my job was to wake up wake everyone up and deliver their newspaper and in all seriousness uh, Nick Clegg was probably the hardest person to wake up of anyone uh, that I woke up and, and that's what the country's been feeling for the last five years eh? Hey? Hey? and um, well, the, the, the there was something else I was going to say and you, you kind of knocked me sorry he was very oh yes and so the, I, I remember saying when there was Clegmania the first round of Clegmania when they had a poll and he was more popular than <laughs> Churchill do you remember that it was on the cover of all the papers and um, and then they, I, I said like, I used to wake him up and then that became a big news item and and um, <laughs> Which is it seems slightly ridiculous, and then and then oh yeah, he issued a statement saying, "I have no recollection of being woken up <laughs> by Louis Theroux." 
which first of all hurts a little bit like how quickly we forget but second of all and what I thought about is it's possibly plausible because he was in such a deep sleep and I would be shaking him like that and then maybe he was bleary for the first few minutes so maybe he really doesn't remember maybe just that he woke himself up every morning maybe didn't realise that was you maybe he thought that's what it was yeah with my, with my gentle fingers <laughs> talk about a finger travelling through time <laughs> we're not going to talk I'm not, I haven't asked you a single emergency question I'm very proud of myself <laughs> okay, it's Louis Farouk we can't waste the, there's so much stuff to talk to you about that'd be sad though if uh, when I die that's what I'm remembered for is <laughs> I woke up Nick Clegg <laughs> I'm going to do my best and better than nothing A kill you and B <laughs> have you remembered for that um, have you ever tried to suck your own cock <laughs> do we have to no did you ever try to suck Nick Clegg's cock when he was asleep <laughs> That gets applause, does it? <laughs> Is that the level we're at? I like the way I was having to go at you for being puerile and immature at the beginning of your yeah. career. Pathetic never, was the I've word. I haven't forgotten what you said. I am pathetic. I mean, you know, that is... I'd be, you should do one of those shows about me. Oh. <laughs> um, you know, there's No so is much. the answer. No, it's... To okay. the Nick Clegg one. Okay. Um, <laughs> It's uh, interesting. I always respected Russell Brand. But on his show, he gave a hand job to a, uh, yeah. a tramp. Do you remember that? I do. I talked to him about it when he came on. I always thought that was a brave thing to do. <laughs> for the tramp or for the... <laughs> <laughs> it was really unpleasant. He talked about it and it was really unpleasant. Yeah. I mean, he was... He told very, me that story. He was very heavily on drugs and... What did he say? He, he, he told me the thing about the tramp was having trouble... And said something like, can I... He wanted to touch Touch you while I'm doing it. And then the producer said... Let's go on, let's move on. The producer said... It's my ambition... Sorry, go on. The producer said it would be funny, so he did it. That's That's right. Do you you self-produce? Do you have a producer there? Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Uh, And as a director, really, is what... Yeah. That I I work with, yeah. Uh, I don't do it all myself. That would be... Well, I've got a question from... uh, This is Cash for Questions. Anthony Ryan... Uh, would like to ask Louis Theroux if he ever genuinely feared for his life during an interview because you do I mean I think that's it's, it's interesting that you push it mm. and then I think like even more so in the kind of Eugene Terra Blanche kind of mm. situation and the and in the prisons of San Quentin or whatever it is uh, that you know you're, you're fronting out incredibly dangerous people with charm and asking them quite rude questions. Well, the first thing is in and, and uh, the first thing is in prison or in jail. You're not really in that much danger as a visiting journalist. If I was spending the night there uh, as a new inmate, different story. But the, the, it's somewhat illusory, I think, the idea that I'm going to be ushered into a, a cell and then just for giggles, uh, one of the inmates is going to stab me in the neck. <laughs> You know, if he's going to, because he'll pick up a new murder charge, right? And if he's going to do that, stab someone, he's, he needs a better reason than he asked me a cheeky question. <laughs> At least that's what I tell myself. <laughs> I mean, um, there's, there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot of proper risky ones, though, surely. The, I think the about... riskier ones, um, I, probably I was quite scared when I went to a, a neo-Nazi 
um, it was kind of a what they call a hate core music event. So there were about 150 skinheads, um, and, and it, it, was, it was just weird. Just this feeling of everyone kind of hating, hating me, and hating my, you know my crew and my director. And uh, it's a kind of a how long have we got? It's, it's a bit of an anecdote. We got as long as you want. Do a when short you, version. You... You, we knew it was going to be dangerous. Or might be. So the BBC sort of said, well, we think you should go in with um, some uh, protection. So they flew in two security guards who were absurd characters. Who, both of them looked like sort of Magnum. Who, like, you know, if he'd just been eating donuts for a year. <laughs> if he'd just been eating Magnums for a year. There you go. <laughs> wearing, like, what they were wearing these Hawaiian shirts that were kind of boxy, so that they because they had these guns, and the idea was like, yeah, we, we've made, you know, it's a skinhead event, and we've made an assessment, there'll be uh, Aryan nations, Aryan brotherhood, um, they're going to make a determination that you're Jewish, pointing at me, um, and that's not going to go well. <laughs> But uh, what we'll do, we'll do close protection at all times. I'll, we'll be on either side, and we'll kind of be around. And, and basically, they had this scenario where I'd be sort of, they'd be around me, kind of like, so I couldn't be stabbed while I'm doing my interviews. And the whole thing was absurd, because it would have looked ridiculous, <laughs> me going in in a sort of, in a magnum sandwich while doing my interviews. And then uh, my director, Stuart, who is actually Jewish, who was getting more and more nervous, uh, you know, as was I, in fact, and, and um, he said, by the way, you know, we can't bring any weapons in, so, you know, you, you can't bring your guns in. And the, and the two uh, bodyguards said, oh, well, we can't go in without our guns. <laughs> uh, but uh, what we can do is we can be down the street surveilling you, and we'll be make, keeping a close eye on everything that happens. So completely useless. So yeah. by the time I've been uh, attacked and yeah. killed by one of these Aryan uh, Brotherhood uh, skinheads, you know, they, they can come and run in with their guns and, and sort of cradle me as I bleed to death. <laughs> uh, so they didn't come in, and then we went in, and, it, you know, it was sort of... Um, oh, it was okay. Uh, I, you know, there was all this sort of, like, skinhead scare. Are you from the Jews media? I was like, oh, I guess. So, so, uh, we call it the news media, but... Um, and, and, and we sort of... Uh, it felt kind of scary. Uh, but, in fact, uh, it went off without a hitch. And then a few weeks later, I went back and talked to two of the skinheads, and one of them got drunk. And that's actually probably the best scene in the finished doc, where he starts accusing me of being Jewish. And that felt like, because he was drunk and he was getting aggressive, um, like he might possibly... But, you know, I don't think that... You know, the most dangerous situations are things like riots, and any time you're in a sort of turbulent environment, or chimpanzees. (laughs) (laughs) Because I did do a thing about... Um, it's all about building rapport, right? Yeah. And, and, and even if you're with a, like a serial killer or a um, deranged, uh, you know, whoever it is, if you feel like there's eye contact, you can read the body language, the tone of voice, and, and you'll be fine, you know, most of the time. You know, there's a kind of, we have a language in common. With chimps, you don't have that. <laughs> and so, and also I've been reading a lot of stuff about how they... Um, when, if they go for you, they, they typically will rip off your genitals and, um, and also bite off your nose, which are two of my favorite features. <laughs> two of my calling cards, if you will. And, um, 
it just seems uh, awful. And you imagine going back in the BBC saying, like, um, you know, we want to stand by you, and you've always got a career here. Uh, you've been wonderful, so you're, you can still work for the BBC without a nose. Like, but you, what would they? Wouldn't let you present TV anymore, would they? With no nose, like that. That would be the end. That would be the end. Uh, it would be radio. You could have a false. You could have a false. You'd have nose. to get a prosthetic nose. Yeah. It'd be like Mad Max. You could have a brass nose if you see. You, know. you could. You could attach your nose to your glasses, though. So I just. It would have to be. <laughs> It would be something like that. So, so, so to me, it felt most life-threatening when I was uh, meeting a chimpanzee. And I don't know if you saw that one. I but don't remember the chimpanzee. Basically, I, I, I met the small chimpanzee, and then uh, there was a bigger one who all the way, all, all the time I'd been interviewing his, his, his kind of parents, his human, <laughs> his human parents, so they were saying like, well, yeah, the, his name's Took, and you know, he's a lot of fun. He's very frisky. Um, <laughs> and he kept throwing things. He was in his cage, and he kept throwing things at me yeah. at the bars, right? these barrels that he had to and I was thinking like he really doesn't seem to like me they said he's pretty safe you know we've had him castrated right his, his penis and testicles were in a jar in the, in the, in the garage so that you know we figure uh, you know that's you know calmed him down a lot and um and having read all these stories, and he was right on the cusp. Like the, the bottom line with chimpanzees is that for the first sort of five or six years, you know, they will drink Tetley tea and have be fun and cuddle Michael Jackson and they're all the things that you associate like with chimps being fun, right? Pose for birthday cards, and then um, and then when they reach sort of chimp adolescence, they become more and more feisty until they become they sort of go from being like cuddly bundles of fun to stone-cold killers <laughs> who rejoice in ripping off your, your, your testicles. Yeah, well. and, and that's the rest of the next 40 years. That's what they are. And Tuke was on the, right on the turn, <laughs> right? Like, could go either way. I mean, he technically was in killer country, but because his, his own testicles have been removed, yeah. he, they reckoned, like, oh, no, he probably wouldn't go for you. But, but how do you know? Anyway, we, we, they let, the bottom line is I say, like, I don't even want to take the risk. Sorry, on this one, I'm not going to be the brave guy. But I'll hide in the house, <laughs> and you can let him out. They really wanted him to... They, his claim to fame, and the reason they allowed us to film with him was that he was the world's only swimming chimpanzee. <laughs> so that was like, we really this wanted to... This never happens. This wasn't a Louis Farouche. show. So he comes out, swimming and they're like, okay, we'll get him out, and you can see him swimming, and he loves it in the hot tub. So he comes out of the cage, and he kind of lopes over. This is absolutely true. He goes to the outdoor <laughs> cabana, where they've got a fully stocked bar. They give him a beer. <laughs> he drinks like, some of the beer. He puts it down, and then he swaggers over to the house. And we're inside the house, and it's like... Oh shit, he's coming towards the house, <laughs> filming through this sort of window. He comes over to the window and he sees and he sees like a guy with a very appealing nose, <laughs> uh, tight trousers, <laughs> and like uh, my director and also, you know, camera and sound. And, 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 and. <laughs> And then, and then, kind of, and then the next he goes over and he smashes the glass. Yeah. And 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 we're in the like, like ah! <laughs> you know, like we didn't think, like we thought we were safe 
in the house. We didn't think he'd come over and smash the glass and come in and rip us to pieces. They have the strength of six men. This is one of the things that's constantly being passed around. Sometimes five men, sometimes ten men, anywhere in between. But he's like, they're unbelievably strong. So he smashes the glass. And then, uh, and then, thankfully, like it was always like, oh, I wasn't. But I think he just wanted to beat on the glass, you know, and like he thought it was going to make a cool noise, (laughs) but it broke, and I think that shocked him. And then he kind of loped away. But that felt to me like the closest. If you could call that an interview, (laughs) that felt to me like the closest I got to being beaten up. That's, uh, I don't think that happened. It's in that, the, you see, that happened the same it. week you were interviewing people about crystal meth addiction. And this... Yeah, and then there was this monkey. He came swimming monkey. <laughs> came trying to rip off my genitals <laughs> to replace his own genitals. We don't have... We've written, we're pretty much... I mean, we could talk to you. There's so much oh, to talk to you about. I'd love to. Um, I, was, I sort of was interested if you'd... Um, I love the one where you went to the Westboro Baptist, Baptist Church, yeah. and there was the girl that you kind of seemed to get quite close to, and con- was and, and did you convince her to leave in the end? Or well, she left? there's a sort of, uh, the, the two thing, two things. There were several young women there at that time, and yeah. and and basically the one that I sort of found the most interesting, you know, based on my my sense that she was sort of in turmoil about what she was doing. Because I, 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 I did a follow-up. When I went back for the follow-up, she'd not only become more embedded, more indoctrinated, she had married a, a British man who'd gone over there having seen my first documentary. <laughs> so I kind of unwittingly match-made, uh, which is a little disappointing. It's pretty bad if someone's watched that documentary and gone, you know where I want to go. Yeah. <laughs> Although they were very, those girls were sort of, there was a sort of, a, they were appealing because they were so, you know, it was so, what's happened to them was so horrible that I can see you kind of being, I'd like to go and save those poor women from this awful... Right, but he didn't think that. No, he, he thought, I want to go over there and uh, continue doing that crazy stuff. But the two, there were two other uh, girls who... I got to know who I thought were more solid, like the, sort of true believers, and they they left. Um, in fact, there were three that left. Right. Um, and so when I did the follow up, I met I met them and found out why why they'd left. And uh, were you happy when uh, was it Fred? Was Fred the, died. It? Fred died. <sighs> you know, I don't. You know, I didn't feel. I don't. I, I don't. I, I don't think. I'd, you know, I wasn't happy. You know, I. I I didn't feel... I wasn't sad, you know? <laughs> it, it, I don't rejoice... I don't think I do, like, in, 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 in people dying. Um, uh, but I, I suppose... Uh, it just... Uh, it's a, I didn't really have any feelings about well, it. Well, do you think they'll carry on without him? Or do you, I mean, is it yeah, going he to... wasn't really... He, he'd become a passenger, kind of. Having invented their doctrine... Um, and, and dictated, you know, their, their pickets and the fact that they would go and picket at the funerals of soldiers and other other high-profile people, waving offensive placards. Do I need to tee up what they do? Some people may not have seen the program. Yeah. And placards that would say, uh, "God hates fags. Fags eat poop," and so on and so on. Um, that was his kind of. That was his revelation that, 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 that that's what we should all be doing. But up towards the end. He'd become slightly irrelevant. He'd become a sort of embarrassing granddad. And he'd even been excommunicated um, from the church, 
which I think doesn't mean that much, except he wasn't allowed to preach, and you know, they, he was he had to stay in his little his granny annex. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But I don't think uh, so. So towards the end, it had taken on a life of its own. It was very much being driven by his children. Yeah. She's pretty. The, 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 Surely. Yeah, she's pretty phenomenal. Insane. She was driving it. But now I think, I mean, I don't know how interested in the kind of internal politics of the Westbrook Baptist Church people are, but I think she's been sidelined now. Right. And um, the guy called Steve Drain, who was the documentary maker who went there before <laughs> I did to make a film about them and then ended up kind of being converted yeah. and, and had become sort of the most uh, uh, fire-breathing and, and, and extreme of, of all of them. He, 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 I think, is kind of, I don't know about running the show, but he's, he's, he's calling the shots yeah. now, I think, to, a, to an extent. Do you think any of them will ever, any of these people will ever convert you to their, you'll go along and become part of... Of any of the stories that I do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but I've got to the point now where, uh, you know, I do shows about people that, you know, actually, you know, I've done s- stories about people who, through no fault of their own, either have had um, life-threatening illnesses or mental illness or uh, Alzheimer's and so on. Uh, you know, I think... And, and clearly that's, uh, that's something that anyone could be affected by. You know, I think my, my, my sort of p- pathetic... Your word. <laughs> ...fantasy is, is probably that I'll be maybe... Like, I, could be, I could become a like, full-time psychiatrist at a forensic hospital or something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I've already, I feel like I've learned enough about psychiatry that I could fake it pretty well. <laughs> I guess with when you did Paul Daniels, you sort of became friends in the end of that one, didn't you? After uh, I didn't Mrs. see him, we didn't mix United. socially. The sad thing is, like, of all the people that I've um, met, you know, in terms of the celebrity ones over the years, I kept in touch with Jimmy Savile. Like I used to see him a fair bit after the shows, after the show was finished. Which makes it even weirder, right? <laughs> yeah, you haven't cho- you haven't chosen well with the people. You've I never been saw thought, with. but you know what it was was it wasn't like oh me and Jimmy are mates now. It was what it was was this feeling that I hadn't I hadn't kind of got to the end that, that you know that, that I hadn't quite figured out. I can't believe it's me that's coming back to Jimmy Savile. <laughs> I always feel like um, I should probably stay away from the subject. It's just, it's just still too raw. But, um, but you know, I always felt, you know, uh, he used to do a lot of work at Broadmoor and he was on the Board of Governors and, and I'd known that he had some sort of a relationship with Peter Sutcliffe, right? And in fact, one of the things he said to me in one of his sort of mysterious, tantalising moments, but this is a typical sort of thing that Jimmy Savile would say in, in his kind of macabre moods, was I said to him, have you been following the, um, this whole thing with Myra Hindley, the Myra Hindley story? Because at that time, I think she, I can't remember what it was. I think she was trying to get out. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, I am the Myra Hindley story. I was like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> but I didn't follow up and say, like, what, the, what does that mean? Yeah. Because I knew that he then retreat. He just wanted to tantalise and yeah. sort of suggest, like, well, either he's saying he is a prolific criminal and psychopath, or he's saying, I know everything about everything that happens at every forensic hospital in the country. Anyway, though, so I always felt like there was this sort of, this sign of Jimmy Savile that was fascinated by uh, psychopaths, Peter Sutcliffe, serial killers that would joke about and that would sort of, that, that, that would enjoy spending time with these guys. And, I, and I, whenever I went back with him, I would always be like, hey, when are we going to go down to Broadmoor 
you know, and, 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 and we can sort of hang out down there. And I thought maybe that would be my entree into understanding that side of his personality. Like, that I just, at some point, he'd sort of give up the goods, but he never really did. There's a good uh, thing when you and Adam and Joe singing Groovers in Dancer to Groovers in the Heart. That is a good I clip. Wanted, I wanted to watch that on YouTube. It's good fun. That is a fun How one. old are you in that clip? 20? Oh, you look about 15. It's very sweet. Uh, it's been really... We're going to have to stop. There's so much more oh, okay. I would love to uh, talk to you about. It's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr Louis Theroux. <laughs> Richard Herring's That's the Square Theatre Podcast with me, Richard Herring, and my guest, Louis Theroux. The music, yeah, I'd always forget who it's by. It's by Pest, and they're really good. Listen to them playing their instruments now. Mm. Uh, thank you to everyone at the Leicester Square Theatre. Thank you to everyone who contributed to the Kickstarter that made this go on video. It would have been on audio anyway, so, you know, fuck you. Uh, and thank you also to the people from Go Faster Strike. Chris Evans, not that one, or that one, or that one. It's the other one. He eats seaweed, that one. The one with seaweed all over his face. And to all of his crazy gang of people who do the recordings. This, I would also very much like to thank Ben Walker, my producer, who produced this. Thank you, Ben. I would just like to thank you personally for that. This is a Fuzz Sky Potato and GoFasterStrike.com production. Thank you very much for listening to Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre Podcast. You can help support us by going to gofasterstripe.com slash badges and buying a badge. Or I'm sure there'll be another Kickstarter campaign for the next series. So maybe hold up your money for that if you love Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre Podcast. I just want to give a shout out to Chris Hopkins who paid some money for us to do that and then didn't even leave anything to say. He just wants his name. It's now gone down in record, Chris. You'll never be forgotten. In centuries, people will be watching this. And they'll go, I wonder who the mysterious... Chris Hopkins was. So thanks for watching. Go to LeicesterSquareTheatre.com to buy tickets to see the shows uh, or to see any of my 12 one-man shows that I'm doing in August and September if you are in London or can get here easily. Here are some of the names of some of the other people who have helped us make this series of Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre podcast. I feel a bit like this is the Oscars and these are the people who've died this year. Let's make out it is. If they all do die this year, this will be chillingly uh, worrying. They are... Matthew Smith, Ewan Duncan, Rob Applin, Darren Foote, Colin Anderson, Raymond Harpany, Kevin Tipcorn, Steve Mash, Dean Ratland, Gaynor Wilson, Adam Queck, Stuart Fawcett, Tim Turner, Julian Benton, Thomas Baldwin, Lauren Pilkington, Matthew Blackburn, Neil Martin, Jack Burton, Fraser Levy, Gina Lynn, Paul Jeffrey, Rob Ward, Robert Tang Richardson, Leo Vagoda, Carol Forster, Icky Kawa, Cole McGonagall, Aurora Watters, Jake, Heather Henderson, Simon Carl, Christine Sato, David Collier, Jijin John, Roy Owens, Matthew Poynton, and Nick Hayward. What, from Haircut 100? Well, it might be. Uh, Graham Norgate, he's got lots of money, I expect. Fantastic day. Asif Khan, Beck Evans, Jack Brooks, Steve O'Connor, Steve Pagioli, Ben Hayward, John, and Adrian Ryder. Thanks to all of you guys for helping us out. Now go away and come back next week when there'll be some more. Don't drink the milk. Don't drink the milk. Don't drink the milk. No, this isn't a podcast about milk. If you like historical intrigue, a bit of culture and a sprinkling of controversy, this one's for you. 
I'm Rachel Stewart, and I'm travelling around Europe, following the hidden history of everyday things as they're exported through time and around the world, by force, by chance, or by choice. No need to pack your bags. Just subscribe to Don't Drink the Milk wherever you listen to podcasts. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Thanks very much, richardherring.com slash Rahalastapa for those remaining Rahalastapa dates, Rahalastapa, and richardherring.com slash ballback slash tour to find out all the tour dates for my upcoming stand-up. Would love to see you at those ones. Please book tickets if you can. All right, enjoy another podcast. Don't listen to anyone else's podcast but mine. Stay faithful, and I'll see you on the next one. Bye.